You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. How many of you, growing up, heard the phrase, everything is fun and games until someone loses an eye? I know I heard it all the time. Um, for some reason, it wasn't my mom. It was one of my friends that used to say it all the time, but I heard it all the time. And I find myself saying that sometimes to our kids. Everything is fun and games until someone loses an eye. And it speaks about the fact that there are times that it doesn't seem like a big deal what's going on, but there could be disastrous consequences. And I'm sure that you've, you've had times with your kids, and I know I have with mine, where we tell the boys to stop doing something, and it's just kind of like, hey, that's not a good idea. You're going to hurt yourself. And, and they don't ever think they're going to hurt themselves. And then all of a sudden, somebody falls off the back of the couch. And you just hear this shriek and this wailing. And somebody's got hurt. And that's often what happens. Well, tonight, what we're going to see is Paul is forced to deal with a behavior, an issue, that I don't think was intended to be harmful. I don't think Peter had malicious ideas as he acted the way he did, yet his behavior could have been incredibly disastrous, destructive to the church. I don't know if he realized, I don't know if he realized how terrible what he was doing was and what kind of consequences it could have. But we will see his behavior, because it was so unbecoming of the gospel, could have ruined that church in Antioch. And so let us pray tonight and then get into this story of Peter and his fall, his, his terrible decision. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, Lord. I thank you that we can come to you tonight, Lord. I thank you that we can look to your word. God, I thank you that as we think about this story, that you are a God of grace. Lord, that we once again see a, a good man, Peter, who loves you, um, fall once again. And Lord, he's, he does that through his life. And it's a reminder to us that you are gracious and forgiving and loving God. Because, Lord, I know that I fail you all the time. And I'm glad that we have a God who forgives and who picks us up again, Lord, and who restores us in relationship with you and who uses us once again. And so, God, I thank you for that. And, God, I pray that as we look to your, this passage this evening that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to see um, what we should learn for our lives, what the gospel teaches us in this passage. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul here is laying out the defense of the gospel. You know by now that the book of Galatians, it's a defense of the gospel by faith alone apart from works. And at this point, it's impossible to recap the entire book. But in chapter 2 here, Paul is now getting in and he's, he's making very clear that what the apostles teach is the same gospel that he brought them. But that that fact that, this, that they preach the same gospel that he brought them isn't actually all that relevant because the gospel he brought them was from God. And so the authority must be God anyway. And so any gospel can't find any authority in the church of Jerusalem or in any man, Peter included, that it must come from God. And so he's saying, listen, the gospel I gave you, it's from God. And so he's laying out a defense of the gospel and he's demonstrated now how we should view one another in spite of the gospel, that we view leaders as under the authority of God, that we view the poor as loved by God, as important, that we view ourselves as servants of God in need of God's power. 
We learned that this morning. Now in verse 11, we're going to get almost like a story that illustrates why this sermon this morning is so essential, why it's so important. Because we'll see one of these four men listed fall. And so let's look at Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, this verse here was like pulling the pin of a grenade and tossing it and just watching it explode. It's an explosive verse. You think about what he's saying. Now, my guess is what's happened is some of the, the false teachers have come and they've told the churches of Galatia about what happened in Antioch. But their version of the story was, well, Peter came to Antioch and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. That's what we're going to find out. That's what happened. And so I think what is happening here is Paul's going to confront this story. He's going to say, listen, you might have heard about this story, but this is what actually happened. Peter came to Antioch and he did something that was so atrocious, so terrible, so unbecoming the gospel that I withstood him to the face. And we'll find out a little bit later that he withstood him to the face publicly. So here you have the Apostle Paul, who is the great missionary of the church, the great evangelist, and the Apostle Peter, who was the spokesman of the other apostles, who was incredibly close to Christ, who was the one who who basically preached the sermon that started the church in Acts chapter 2, these two guys are coming head to head in a showdown. This, This is scary stuff. I mean, we have... Christians have controversies all the time. You know, if, you, if you're in any of the blogs, if you ever are on the internet, uh, if you pay any attention to what's going on in Christendom, and you, you don't need to, but if you do, you know that there's always people fighting. Just this past couple weeks, there's been this big debate going on in the blogs between Tulian to Jekian, he's the one that wrote Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and, and many of the other bloggers from the Gospel Coalition. And the debate is around sanctification, how mankind is sanctified. And his version, Tulian's version, is that you basically just, you just lean into the grace of God, you just think about and consider his love, and eventually that will sanctify you. And many of the other bloggers are saying, no, that's not the case, that to be sanctified, you need to put in gospel-driven effort. You need to work hard, you need to strive for holiness. And so, so this has been a debate. It's so big that Tulian has actually been asked to leave the Gospel Coalition group. And, and so what I'm saying here is that there's always going to be debates. There's always going to be Christians that disagree about doctrine. But this is the only time I can imagine that you have two apostles of their importance having a public standoff about an issue. Right? Can you, can you imagine what this would have been like? We find out that Paul withstands him to the face. He opposes him directly because he was to be blamed, because he was in the wrong. Verse 12. For before that came certain from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. This is what happens here. See, Peter comes to Antioch. And he's rejoicing with the church over what's going on. This is wonderful. Gentiles are being saved. The church is growing. It's a vibrant church community. This is a wonderful thing going on here. And he's having meals with them. And he's eating with them. And he's participating in the fellowship there. But then, from Jerusalem, these teachers come. These these leaders or supposed representatives of James come from the church of Jerusalem. And they start teaching, well, that Gentiles should be keeping the law. And that if you're a Jew, you should also be keeping the law of the Jews. And so that 
it, it's, a, it's a wrong thing. It's a sinful thing for Jews to eat with Gentiles. Why? Because if Jews eat with Gentiles, they might eat their food. They might become unclean. And so in order to stay clean before God, the Jews that are Christians in the church of Antioch must stop eating, fellowshipping with, sharing meals with the Gentile Christians from that church. Now, I don't know, you might say, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, okay, so they just won't eat together, so what? Well, back then, they didn't, they didn't get together for parties or, or those things outside of a meal. Everything centered around the, the meal. I mean, they would eat for hours and talk and sit at the table. This was how they fellowshiped. Not only that, they wouldn't be able to get together as a church for a meal. They wouldn't be able to break bread as a church for the Lord's Supper. This is, this is a really big deal. This is, cuts the church in half. And it says the Gentiles fellowship with each other, and the Jews fellowship with one another, and it becomes essentially two separate churches. You have the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And that is never the plan for the gospel. Peter's actions, I think, I don't, I don't think he was trying to be a really bad guy. I think he kind of just got persuaded. He got, you know, just caught into this idea of Jews and Gentiles being separate and Jews, you know, sticking with the Jewish law, and he went for it. And so verse 12 is a pretty serious thing that he does. Verse 13, and when the other Jews dissembled likewise, the word dissembled, uh, it, it literally means carried away in the hypocrisy with, or being hypocritical in concert with. And so when they dissembled, it's when they joined Peter's hypocrisy. Says, when the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation, with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. So Paul, he sees this problem. He sees the hypocrisy that's going on, and he sees that it's not just Peter now. Peter, because of Peter's actions, there's been many of the Jews in the church that have been carried away with the same hypocrisy. And not only that, Paul's friend and, and fellow minister, fellow missionary, Barnabas. I mean, some of you know how I feel about Barnabas. He's one of my favorite, if not my favorite character in the New Testament. I love Barnabas. He's so encouraging. And I think part of that's because I'm probably not like him. And so he's just something that I have to look up to. But even Barnabas, who sacrificed so much, who was such, such an encouraging person throughout his ministry, is now carried away with this, this hypocrisy. Messing up the gospel. Messing up what the gospel looks like in practical life. And so Paul sees that and he realizes this has to be dealt with. And so he publicly confronts Peter. And this is what he says to Peter. He says, what you're doing is not in accord with the truth of the gospel. Now we could say to him, hey, hey Peter, that's not nice. I mean, how you're acting toward it, it's just a little mean. It's a little rude. You know, that's not what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. You're going to make them feel terrible about themselves. That's not how he comes across. He doesn't even attack his behavior. He attacks his attitude. He attacks what's going on inside of him. He says, your behavior, your attitude 
is not in accord with the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And here we see that the gospel is what should be changing how, our, how we live, how we behave, what our attitudes are like. The problem is not that he's being rude, although he is being rude, or mean, he is being mean. It's not because he's just offending people. The problem primarily is that he's messing up the gospel. The gospel in real life is not being lived out properly. So he confronts him to the face. And then he says, this is his argument, it's brilliant. He says, if we being a Jew live us after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as the Jews? Listen, Peter, you came here and you lived like a Gentile. You ate with them. You stopped doing the religious ceremonies at the, the temple. I mean, you were a Gentile. And so now you as a Jew are going to try and convince the Gentiles that they need to act like Jews even though the Jews are acting like Gentiles. You see how ludicrous that is? And it's crazy to think that we could put that on other people. To say, you should live like this even though we don't live like that at all. Even though we live opposite to what we're actually teaching. I hope this is striking a nerve with us because we understand that many times we do this, don't we? We look at other people and we say, they should be doing this. They should be loving God more. They should be sacrificing more. They should be more holy. They should, they should be doing something more in the church. And instead of pointing our finger at us and saying, well, does my life line up with the gospel? We're saying, you should be more like this. You should be more like this. That's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, Gentiles, you need to be more like the Jews, even though he's not realizing that as a Jew, he's living like the Gentiles. Right? It's just completely hypocritical. So Paul calls him out. If you're Peter, what do you say to that? I mean, he doesn't actually record what he said, but I think he would have said, you're right. And it seems like as we read the rest of the New Testament that Peter confessed and he got right and he he went on to live the way he should. So he says, we who are Jews by nature, we who are born by Jews and not sinners of the Gentiles, Knowing, verse 16, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That verse could not be more clear. Where does our justification come from? It does not come from from the works of the law. There's nothing that you can do to merit your justification. Your justification comes from faith in Christ alone. Says Peter, if their justification, if they were made righteous, declared righteous by a holy God, so when God looks at them, he does not see their sin, he does not see them as a sinner, he sees them as his child who is white and pure and righteous. When, if that's what made them justified, How could you now say that they're going to improve on that perfection by going back to keeping the law that nobody could keep in the first place? Not even you could keep in the first place. Not even the Jews could keep. They were born that way. Justification is by faith alone. And this is important because all of of what Paul is teaching here and all of the way Paul is defending the gospel— It has a bearing on how the Christian lives their life. And we see that so clearly here in the way Peter messed up living his life because he wasn't living in accord with the gospel. And so what I thought we'd do this evening 
is I thought we would, instead of just making direct application, I would ask four questions. And I want you to think about these questions in your life. And I think these are questions that would have been good for Peter to ask, and they're good questions for us to ask. And hopefully, as we ask them and as you think about them, the Holy Spirit will work in your heart, and we'll see what we need to change, what we need to work on in our lives so that they're more like the gospel would have them be like. So the question to start with is this. Are you justified by faith in Christ apart from works? Okay? And I know that anybody that is justified is justified by faith apart from works. That could not be more clear than verse 16 makes it. So my question for you then is, are you justified by faith apart from works? As an individual, not as, not as like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe that Jesus can save, I believe that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, I believe that God would save me if I prayed to him. I'm asking not if you believe some of the right things, I'm saying, have you personally been justified? Do you know for sure that you are justified? That you have been washed? That he has saved you because of your faith apart from any works? Or is there a little bit of you that says, yeah, I I believe in Jesus and I'm a pretty good person. I believe in Jesus and I go to a Baptist church. You know, I believe in Jesus and I I do this, these other things. I try to be nice to my neighbor. I I help old ladies get across the street when they need help. I mean, I'm, I'm a decent, sincere person. And so Jesus plus that will help me get there. Or maybe it's just something that's been like theoretical for you. Like, yes, you believe that that's true, but it's never actually become personal. It's never actually been a decision that your heart has made to to stop relying on anything else other than Christ and his death on the cross. So the first question is, are you justified by faith apart from, faith in Christ apart from works? Are you? Timothy George said this, He said, human beings are forever trying to add something to God's completed work of salvation. It may be Jesus Christ in the Mass, or Jesus Christ in water baptism, or Jesus Christ and good works, or Jesus Christ and a charismatic experience. Paul's argument is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can be mingled with Christ as a ground of our acceptance with God. Our hope is is built on nothing less and nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Are you justified by faith in Christ apart from works? Question number two. Is your life determined, is your lifestyle determined by the truth of the gospel? Is your lifestyle, the way you live, the way you behave and your attitude and, and, and everything that if people were to look at your life, is that determined by the truth of the gospel? You say, what's the big deal? Peter was just switching eating buddies. He was, right? He was just going from one table to another table, switching the place or the time that he ate. And we think that, that it's not that big of a deal, but we fail to realize that anything that's other than an outright denial of a false gospel is a tacit approval of it. When we don't deny what's not true, and adamantly and say, listen, that, that's wrong, Peter. What you're doing is wrong. That behavior is wrong. It's not in accord with the gospel. Then we are, we are in, in a way, approving it. And that's exactly what Peter was doing, right? When Peter steps on the side of the guys who come from Jerusalem, he is giving approval to everything that they teach, whether he likes it or not. Even if he didn't believe, and it seems like Peter still did believe the right thing, he was just acting the wrong way. 
But even though Peter believed the right thing and he was just acting the wrong way, it would seem to everybody else that Peter believed what those people believed. And so do we walk upright according to the gospel? Some of my favorite verses in the New Testament are in the book of Titus, uh, Titus chapter 2. And it's speaking about how our lives should be transformed by the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Speak the things which become sound doctrine. Titus, make sure you're teaching your church the things that become sound doctrine. He's not telling them to teach them sound doctrine, though he does tell them that in other places in that letter. He's telling them to teach the things that are in accord with sound doctrine, the lifestyle that fits with, that aligns with sound doctrine. Then he says in verse 7, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. What becomes sound doctrine? Well, in everything you do, show yourself a pattern of good works. People should be able to look to you and say, that man, that woman has character. They, they don't just say they're a Christian, they act like it. In verse 8, he says, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Your neighbors and your friends and your relatives and those who aren't saved around you should be able to look at your life and look at your speech and say, listen, I think those people are crazy. I think they are dead wrong in what they believe. I do not agree with their gospel, but I'll tell you this, they do. They live it. I mean, as much as I don't agree with it, I can't find a fault in their life where I say, listen, yeah, okay, they say this, but really this is how they live. That's so true for so many Christians. There's way too many of us where if the world around us was to look at our lives, they would say, okay, you say this is true, but why are you living like this? It doesn't make any sense. Just like Peter is here. And so the world around us should not have any evil thing to say of us. And then my favorite verse in verse 10 says, not purloining or not not stealing, not embezzling, but showing all good fidelity, all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Show that the doctrine of, of God, the gospel of Christ, show that it is beautiful. Adorn it. It's the picture of getting a bride ready for her wedding day. You know, She's beautiful already, but you put the makeup on, you put the earrings on, you, you, you put the dress on, and you put everything on to make it, her look just beautiful. You don't want to take anything away, anything to distract from her beauty. She's beautiful in herself. But we're supposed to adorn the doctrine. We're supposed to show how beautiful Christ is in our lives. And so the question is, do our lives reflect the gospel? Do our lifestyles reflect what we believe about the gospel? Are they determined by the truth of the gospel? Paul could have attacked Peter on many grounds, but he attacked Peter because his life did not reflect the gospel. Number three, does the fear of men influence you? Are we influenced by the fear of men? See, I don't, I don't think Peter believed the wrong thing. I don't think all of a sudden he changed his doctrine. You remember in Acts chapter 10 when God appeared to Peter in a trance, in a vision, and Peter saw the things, the sheet and all of the unclean animals come down, and God said, take Peter and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean my entire life. And God says, 
what God, what I have made clean, don't you call unclean? And that happens three times. And then finally, it seems like Peter gets it. And then the next minute, somebody knocks on the door and, and Peter goes and shares the gospel with Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, a, a Gentile. And Cornelius gets saved in his house and, and they get the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that story? I don't think that left Peter's memory. I don't think he, he, had, he had completely forgotten truth. I think what happened here is he was afraid of men. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, sorry, verse 12, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. He feared them. He feared what they would think of him. Now, do you know what's amazing about Peter? Peter's life was on the line on a number of occasions. Okay? He was early, after Pentecost, he was in the temple preaching and they healed somebody and then, then he was brought before the Jewish leaders, the same Jewish leaders that had killed Jesus and his response to them is, should we obey you or should we obey God? Okay? He's, I mean, he's bold. We're going to obey God because that's what's right to do. And then the next chapter, the same thing happens and the, now the other apostles there and their response is the same. We're going to obey God and not men. And we say, yes, Peter did not fear man. But who was it that Peter denied Christ with first. A little servant girl. He's worried about what people are going to think of him, right? Worried about being connected with Jesus here. And now, in this story, I mean, his life is not on the line. What's the big deal? There's these leaders, and, and, and the worst that's going to happen is that the leaders that have come, or the, the, the men that have come from Jerusalem, will think poorly of Peter. That's the worst that's going to happen. They're going to say, oh, Peter doesn't get it. Okay? He doesn't know what we know, that you should keep the law in order to be saved. And yet, this is the thing that Peter's afraid of. And, and it's funny, because I think this is true for us. I would rather have somebody put a bullet to my head and say, do you believe in Jesus, than I would stand in front of a group of people who are going to laugh at me because I believe in Jesus. Isn't that strange? That's, that's how we are. We are influenced by our peers. We're influenced by people around us. I had to do a, a, an essay on peer pressure in my last class. And it's amazing how peer pressure, I mean, it certainly attacks teenagers. It's certainly a big thing in their lives. But it doesn't end. It doesn't go away. We all experience it. We all want other people to like us, to think highly of us, to think well of us. And this is what Peter's got going on. He's, he's afraid of the Jews, and so he does something so terrible. And so the question for us is, does the fear of men influence us? You know, people that have a reputation, they seem more susceptible to this. It's like the more highly people think of you, the more worried you are about how people think of you. Well, that's why pride is such a danger. We start thinking well of ourselves, and other people do as well, and then all of a sudden, we're so concerned with what people think of us, we're no longer fearing God, we're fearing men. And so Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 said, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Remember those verses. You can please men or you can please Christ. You can't always do both. Does the fear of men influence you? And the final question, number four, who are you influencing? Who is your life influencing? See, Peter thought he made this decision in a vacuum that maybe he could just all of a sudden go and eat with another crowd and, and nobody else would notice. 
next thing you know, all the Jews are doing the same thing. They're, they're, they're leaving their tables and going to eat only with and, and soon the whole church is being divided. And soon even Barnabas is carried away with their hypocrisy. This is what happens. I don't think we realize how many people we influence. Okay? It's because we live a life and so we make the decisions we make and then we think that the decision that I made to do this sin, to participate in this, it has some consequences that I see, but it's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And we don't realize how consequences often have a ripple effect. You know, because you were doing that and not something you should be doing, this person didn't grow. This person didn't learn. Because you were doing that, somebody from afar off that you didn't even notice saw what you were doing and was motivated to do the same thing. It, when we make decisions, people around us notice. The decisions you make, it affects your wife, it affects your husband, it affects your children, it affects your parents, it affects your family as a whole, it affects your friends, it affects your neighbors, it affects this church, it affects the leadership of this church. It affects everybody around you. And you might not even realize it, but it's true. What we do influences people. And so when we make these decisions that are selfish because we're worried about the fear of men, we're worried about what somebody else is going to think of us, realize that our decision is affecting everybody around us, either positively or negatively. We have influence. Peter's momentary lapse of judgment could have destroyed an unfathomably good thing that was going on in Antioch. It could have destroyed that church, split it in half. Thankfully, there was a man like Paul who stood up for the truth of the gospel. We all have this tendency to hear the word of God and to agree with it. As I've been preaching, I've seen some heads nodding, some heads nodding off, and, and, and others nodding in agreement. And, and I, think, I think we do this sometimes. We have this tendency to hear the word of God, to agree with it, and then to go on living our lives and, and just not let it change us. Uh, Gloria Furman, Tara's been reading a book called um, Treasuring Christ. And she's a great author. It's a good book. And she said this. She said, Resist the urge to reduce God's word to nice tips for nice living. Give them the gospel. See, the, the reason we give the gospel, the reason we're, we're pressing the gospel, is because the Bible is not just like, oh yeah, if you do this, it'll improve your life a little bit. It is, live the gospel. It'll transform you completely. And if we just pretend like the Bible's these nice tips and we come to church because we're just waiting for you know, a good quote that we can write down or something little we can change. That's, that's not it. What, what we hear in the Word of God, it's meant to transform us. But that does take work. It takes us purposefully applying what we hear. And so when we see Peter here, I hope we see ourselves in Peter, that often we have this tendency to be carried away because of the fear of men and that we could be destroying good things that we could be influencing people in, in a negative way. The decisions we make affect everybody around us. So we must be purposeful in our application of God's word. Paul confronts Peter because he did what we are tempted to do all the time. We are influenced by the fear of men. We disregard what the gospel teaches because we want to impress. We don't want to look foolish. You realize that we live in a world that is never going to be impressed by the gospel. We live in a world that is directly opposed to what the gospel teaches. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, The gospel truth is radically opposed to the assumptions of this world. 
But since we live in the world, we have embraced many of the world's assumptions. This is what happens. We live in the world, and all of a sudden, Christians embrace some of the assumptions of the world. We don't even realize we've done it. All of a sudden, we do care so much about what everybody thinks about us, because that's just what, what people do. And so we have all these assumptions that we've embraced, and then he says, Christian living is therefore a continual realignment process. One of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. It's the process of renewing your mind and then striving for what is true, what is right. We fail to realize the disastrous consequences that can have when we kind of shove off what the Word of God says because something just, just feels right at the time. Can't do it. We must live our lives in line with the gospel.